If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Samuel, the first chapter. We'll be reading the first 20 verses of that chapter and the first 10 verses of the second chapter of 1 Samuel. Of course, this is also printed in your worship guide and available there. Here's God's word. There was a certain man of Raphim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being a drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. <clears throat> and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased no hunger, have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from, from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would honor the very reading of your word. That even now it would begin permeating into our hearts, into our minds, transforming us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would break down whatever walls need to be broken down. Lord, so that we might receive your word. For your words are life and we need life. I pray in this moment that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I talked to another pastor uh, not too long ago and we were talking about things that we uh, like to preach from and he said, I will never preach from the Old Testament at my church, ever. Um, he says, I just always want to preach Jesus. And uh, he even went on to say he thought preaching from the Old Testament was essentially a waste of time. And I was like, what waste of time? Do you, uh, do you just like fast forward to the uh, final chorus of a song? You know, when you listen to it on a CD, do you... Uh, do you just skip straight to the last chapter in a book and just read that? So we, we don't do that. Uh, when, when you watch Star Wars, and I actually use this analogy, I said, you know, when, when you watch Star Wars, do you just watch the scene where uh, Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father, because that's like the pinnacle of all of them. It, it makes no sense unless there's a buildup. Um, I actually got to watch Star Wars with my kids uh, last year. And when it got to the scene where Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father, um, I was just watching my kids the whole time, and, uh, and my oldest Caroline just grabbed her mouth, and she couldn't breathe. She, she actually couldn't breathe. Uh, Natalie, my middle child, got up and just started running. She just started running, <laughs> running in circles, running around the house. She, she, couldn't, she didn't know how to process what had happened. Uh, the next morning, uh, Lauren didn't know that we, we had watched this. Uh, and she is serving breakfast to the kids, and Caroline comes in for breakfast and is just very melancholy. And uh, she won't eat. And Lauren's like, you know, what's wrong? And Caroline's like, I'd, I'd just rather not talk about it. And she's trying to just, like, get this out. And then finally Caroline says, I just, I learned something yesterday. And Lauren's like, what is it? And all these things are going through Lauren's mind. What did she hear? What, did she, what is she too young to have heard? And, uh, and finally she goes, Ugh. 
Darth Vader is Luke's dad. <laughs> and it just blew her world, and it took her a week to get over it. The only way it ever has an impact like that is if you've been going through the movie and you allow it, once you hit that moment, to have the emotional impact it's supposed to have. Going through the Old Testament is similar. We kind of, you know, you want to just, let's just jump to Jesus, let's jump to Jesus. But if you really want to understand who Jesus is, you've got to walk the path of the Old Testament to get there. We study the Old Testament in order to understand and appreciate the New Testament even more. Um, As a matter of fact, you have to to read the Old Testament if you want to know who Jesus is. Um, After the resurrection, possibly you'll remember this story, two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. And this is after Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, And they come upon Jesus and he joins them, but they don't recognize who he is. He's just a stranger to them. And so, as Jesus is walking along with them and he's dialoguing with them, we read this in Luke 24. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. This is really a remarkable story because Jesus is walking next to these people who had already knew him, and, and here the, the miracle of all miracles is right next to him, and they don't recognize him. And Jesus doesn't do another miracle. You know, he doesn't pull a rabbit out of a hat, or he doesn't say, uh, you know, let me feed you from uh, uh, just from some loaf of bread, let me feed 5,000, or, or let me do some other grand miracle. He doesn't do that. He says, let's go to the Old Testament. Let's go to the Scriptures. And he walks through Scriptures in order to reveal himself to them. And I love how it's described afterwards, after he came and left. They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the Scriptures? My prayer for us as a church is as we go through the life of David, as we go through the Old Testament, that our hearts would be set aflame, that they would burn within us a new passion about Jesus, that we would understand him more, that we would love him more through our study of the Old Testament. As a church, we have already walked through a number of books in the Old Testament. Uh, Years back, we went through Genesis, we went through Exodus. And we got to see how all of them point to Jesus. All of them lay the foundation for who He is. And so when you come to Abraham, you see how Abraham, yes, he answered the call. Yes, he went out to a land unknown. But Abraham is merely pointing forward to a truer and a better version of himself. He's pointing to a God who left everything that was comfortable to go and to form a new people of God. Jesus is the truer and the better Isaac who was not just offered up to the, on the altar and survived. Jesus was literally offered, sacrificed in order that we might be saved. And just as God said to Abraham, now I know since you have not withheld your only son that you love me, we can look at the death of Jesus and say to God, now we know that you love us because you have not withheld your only son. Jesus is the truer and the better Jacob who wrestled 
and took the blow of justice that we might receive life and be blessed. Jesus is the truer and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king now offers forgiveness to those who betrayed him, those who sold him, and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the newer and the better Moses who stands in the gap between us and God as our mediator. And we've seen this as we've walked through the Old Testament. And now we come to the life of King David. Who, If you're reading through the Old Testament, David absolutely dominates the pages of the Bible. Outside of Jesus, there is... There are more pages devoted to the life of David than any other person. You cannot overstate his importance. Even in the New Testament, he's mentioned 60 times. Jesus was born in the city of David. Jesus was called the son of David. When Jesus was arguing over who he was, when he gave his apologetic for I am the son of God, the only apologetic he ever gave, he pointed to David. He said, you want to know that I'm the son of God? Look at David. Look at what he said about me in Psalm 110. So you can't overstate his importance. So I'm excited about walking through the life of David with you. Um, I was thinking a lot about where should we begin, and I I thought, well, we'll begin at uh, the beginning before the beginning We're going to begin by looking at the birth of Samuel, who would be the one who anointed David as king. Actually, we're really going to to focus in on this time because it's a transitional time in Israel's history. Up to this point before, Israel was kind of this loose confederation of states. They, They didn't have a monarchy. They had judges that would come from time to time and deliver them. But there was no king. And actually the judges that came got more and more evil. And Israel began spiraling down into just moral decay, idolatry. And they had given up on God and they thought that God had given up on them. They were so defeated at this time. And this is where we come upon Hannah and Samuel. Hannah was barren. It's the very first thing we we know about Hannah. Hannah represents all of Israel at this time. She is fruitless. She's without hope here. Look at verse 2. It says, this um, Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. Now, throughout the Old Testament... Being barren is always a sign of hopelessness. So Hannah is a woman without any of hope because there was no greater shame in her day than to be childless. Uh, To be barren meant that you were useless, that you were fruitless. Uh, It's hard for us to understand this in our time, but, but during Hannah's day, a woman's only value came in her ability to produce children, preferably sons. That was her only value. Uh, the great Hebrew and Jewish scholar Robert Alter says that in the ancient Near East, a woman had one great avenue to fulfillment, and that was through bearing 
sons. So that was enormous pressure if, if you're a woman. It's why Rachel back in Genesis said, give me sons or I'll die, because you feel that. You will die if you don't have children. There was such huge pressure. And, and really, you would die if you did not have children, because children were needed for a number of reasons. You had to have children to keep your army up. Remember, these are loose tribes, always fighting with one another and fighting neighboring tribes. And whoever had the biggest army won. And so you needed to produce sons. You also needed children in order to make it financially. You need sons to go out and work the fields, sow the seeds, plow. You needed them to be shepherds to take care of the sheep. You needed children for your retirement plan. You know, there, there is, you don't have like your sheep mutual fund here. You have, you have children who are going to take care of you when you're older. I keep telling my children that now. I, I, I'm like, yeah, I've gone to each one of them personally, and I've said, you know, when we're older, do not put me in a home, okay? Do not put me in a home. Take care of me, all right? And I, I, in their eyes, that day's coming sooner than later. <laughs> I, I mean, just last week, I'm working in the backyard, I'm doing something, and Natalie, my middle child, comes up to me, and she goes, Daddy, that's really good for somebody your age. <laughs> wow. I mean, she, she thinks I'm already out to pasture. In this day, children are essential if you're going to survive. Probably one of the reasons that Elkanah got another wife is because Hannah was barren and he needed children. He needed somebody who could give that to him. Uh, To make matters worse for Hannah, uh, Penina would constantly provoke and irritate her. Uh, Look at verse 6. Says, and her rival, that's Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. The word irritate there does somewhat of an injustice. It's a word that's used to describe a thunderstorm, meaning that when, when Penina would say these things to her, her, her life was in turmoil, it was being blown all around, she was thundering inside. Every time they would, uh, you know, they would go to the well and get water or something, uh, Hannah had to endure like all the whispers of other, the women around. Say, look at Hannah. What a, what a moocher. What does she contribute to society? And then Penina is always like, I know, I know. So this was the world of Hannah. And this went on year after year. And it probably intensified every year because Penina kept having Children. As the years passed, Hannah's biological clock is ticking away. She's feeling more and more pressure. She begins to spiral into depression. You look at verse 7, which says, So went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So, so she's full of tears. She's losing her appetite. She's sad. These, these are clinical signs here of depression. And, and notice that it's even happening when she's supposed to be going to worship. So when she's going to the tabernacle, when she's going to the house of the Lord, this is when these things would intensify. And I just kind of picture the scene of Penina, you know, maybe, maybe going late 
to the house of God and saying, you know, I'm sorry I'm late. You know, I just had so many children I had to get, you know, had to get ready for that I'm always late for these things. Almost every comment would just be stabbing, would provoke her. It had to be hard to even worship. Now today, we don't use our children for our security. I can tell you right off, you don't use them for financial security because they are a huge drain financially. They cost a lot of money, but we still struggle with the same things as Hannah. Every culture places an ultimate value on something In America, I would say it's your looks, it's your education, it's your money, it's who you know. Um, If you are a tall, you know, blonde, beautiful woman and you go in for a job interview with other equally qualified people, do you know who's going to get the job? The same one who got asked to all the dances in high school, the same one who got asked to all the parties, the same one who gets all the attention when they walk in the room. Because that is what we value. Beauty. If somebody were to come in here, um, or, or if you were to meet two people, one, one very poor and one educated, and you know, they, they pull up, um, one, one guy pulls up in their new Porsche, and they come in wearing their Rolex, and another guy takes the city bus here, and you know, is wearing his Timex. Who do you naturally want to be a friend with? Who do you want to take advice from? If, if the rich man came to you and said, you know what you should do with your life? Are you like, yeah, I gotta, wait, i got to write this down. But if the poor guy comes to you and says, you know what you should do with your life? Are you, are you really listening? What do we value? And so our modern culture might look down on Hannah and say it's very primitive. But we have our own things. She'd probably look at you know, us and say, well, all right. My culture puts a premium value on having children, but you know what? At least we don't struggle with eating disorders. But that's how much you value an unattainable level of beauty, that you would do anything to attain it, try to attain it. So every culture has something that we go to and we say, this is what makes us something. And we can relate to Hannah in this. Well, in verse 8, Elkanah tries to comfort his wife. Look what he does. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, this sounds really sweet at first that, you know, Elkanah, he's really trying to comfort his wife, but actually he's becoming more of a problem. He's making things worse for her. He tells her, you know what, you don't, you don't need children to find your value. You, you don't need that. You, you can find your value in my love. And, and so do you see what he's doing? He's saying, don't build your life on having children. Instead, build your life on having my love and my affection. But all he's doing is transferring her identity from one sinking sand to another sinking sand. So let me tell you, I, I love my wife. I am absolutely devoted to her. 
and yet I will disappoint her. Probably the biggest hurts she ever has in life are going to come from me. If she builds her identity on my affection, on my love, she's going to falter. And ultimately, someday, we will part. Either she will bury me or I will bury her. And then where is our identity built then? Last week, I was listening to Dr. Phil. Um, and I, I think it was Dr. Phil. I need to explain myself. I, I was at the gym, and in the men's locker room, they had a TV on, and Dr. Phil was on, okay? I, I don't normally watch Dr. Phil. Uh, and Dr. Phil was trying to comfort a woman who uh, had lost a child. And I think it was Dr. Phil. He's the bald guy, right? All right. Um, and and this, this woman just, she could not be comforted. All right? And, and, and so and finally he goes, you have another son, don't you? And she says, yes. And, and he said, now that's, her, or that's him right there. She's like, yes. And it's like, now look, look at, look at him. He needs you. He's looking to you for strength. Let me, you have a purpose for living. He's right there in front of you. Now I was thinking, that is horrible advice. Because all you're doing is transferring once again. Hey, you want to know your reason for living? Well, well, it wasn't in that child. Now it's in this child. What if something happens to that child? Does she no longer have a reason for living? What he should have done, say, you know what? You need to build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ who will never disappoint you, who will never leave you, whose love always goes towards you. When you hold on to Jesus' hand, even death cannot separate it. That's what he should have said. That's what you build your life on, is the solid rock of Jesus. Not just transferring from one sinking sand to another. This is what Elkanah should have done. He should have told his wife, look to God, find fulfillment in him. But he didn't. Well, thankfully, Hannah does what what my wife does a lot. She ignored him. Um, Listen to the Lord instead. Uh, She doesn't even respond to him. Uh, Instead, she pours out her heart to the Lord. Uh, Look at verse 10. It says, she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now this is an astounding prayer when you study it. At first you think she's, uh, she's interacting like uh, my wife and I do a lot. You know, hey, I'll give you a 15-minute back rub if you give me a 15-back rub. And we're like, you know, deal. You know, we're going to do that. God, you give me a son and I'm going to worship you. You know, deal. And it's, that, that's not at all what's, what's happening here. She does get a son But it's not a deal. Because when she gets this son, she's immediately giving him away. 
He's going to be raised in the temple. She's going to give him to the Lord, make him take a Nazarite vow. So he's not going to live with his mom. He's going to spend his whole life working and serving in the tabernacle. And this means that all the reasons for which Hannah initially wanted a child, for security, a child to, you know, to be a productive member of society so they could go off and fight in the army, so he could provide me financial security. He's my retirement plan. All of those reasons are gone. Because she is giving that child away. Even the, uh, the emotional side of having the child, holding the child, watching the child play with other kids, gone. Because he'll be raised in the tabernacle. If anything, this is going to hurt her because do you know how hard it would be to where at the age of two or maybe at most three, which is what Sammy was, to take your two or three-year-old and give your only son away? Do you know how hard that would be? Even harder than you think because she's giving them to Eli. Eli in chapter 3, you find out, is a horrible father. She is giving her child and entrusting him to a horrible father to work in a temple that has a horrible reputation. I can't imagine the pain that she went through in doing this. And I've heard this said. Before, Hannah had wanted a child just for her. But now she wanted a child for the Lord. A child that the Lord would use for His glory. When you look at her situation, nothing actually changes when she's done praying. She's still barren. She's still not pregnant. Nothing changes. But look at verse 18. It says, Then the woman went her way And she ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's what happens when you transfer your identity from sinking sand to the solid rock of God. She's lifted. She's secure. Because she's no longer entrusting in something that will fade away. Well, within a year, God did give her a child whom she named Samuel. She kept her vow, and so probably ages two or three, she gave Samuel into Eli's care at the tabernacle. And then after she does this, she, she burst into song. And I would have thought it would have been like a lament, because it had to be just such sorrow, I would have thought. But actually, it is a glorious, glorious prayer slash song, one of the best that we have in the Bible, right here from her. Look at chapter 2. We'll read the first couple of verses. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. What? I mean, what words? God, there, there's, 
No other way. There's no other place. I'd rather go to build the identity of my life than you. No rock like you. And I am secure from all my enemies when I do so. And the rest of this prayer, it's remarkable. She, she prays this great reversal. Basically how the rich are going to be thrown down and the, the poor are going to be made rich. How the poor are going to be exalted. How the hungry are going to be filled. And how God is going to work an incredible redemption. And then we get to this uh, remarkable verse in verse 10 at the end. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. The word anointed there is the the same word as Messiah. But what is so remarkable about this is she prays this 70, 80 years before Israel has a king. The king's not even on the radar right now. But yet she says the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the power of His anointed or His Messiah. And what's happening here is as she's, as she's praying or as she's singing these things and she's seeing how God uses weakness for His glory. God, God uses those who wait patiently for Him for His glory. God uses the poor for His glory, the uneducated for His glory. Those who are hungry for His glory. There's this grand reversal. And as she is seeing how all of this has happened throughout history up to this point, now it will happen even more gloriously in the future, she says, in order for this to happen, we have to have a king. Because only a king can undo all the wrongs that are happening right now. And so she begins to pray and to say, a king will come. And she is pointing to David. King David will come. In many ways, you could kind of see her barrenness and having Samuel leading to King David, very similar to Elizabeth's barrenness, having John the Baptist proclaiming the way to Jesus, paving the way for the kingdom to come. And so she looks forward and she sees the need for a great king. And David fills this part in part, but not in whole. If you go if you, to the end of 2 Samuel, we actually read this at the opening of our service. 2 Samuel in verse chapter 22, David is towards the end of his life. So David now has already been king and he's actually done so much of what Hannah prayed. It was a prophetical prayer about his life. We're going to see in the many weeks ahead that what she prays, David unfolds. And then Jesus will unfold even more later. But David begins his prayer at the end of his life and see if these words are familiar. The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. My God, 
my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. Sound familiar? Later on, he would go on to say, Who is a rock except our God? The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the rock of my salvation. And so David, as he's looking back to the, at, at the rest of his life, at the, from the end of his life, he's looking backwards. He's saying over and over again, God has been my strength. I waited patiently for Him, and He placed me on His rock. It's the prayer of Hannah. Fulfilled. At least in part. Because we have to realize, and we're going to see this so clearly in the weeks ahead, that David only partially fulfills this. David is always pointing to a truer and a better version of the King of the Jews, of the Messiah, of the Mighty Deliverer. In order to understand this in full, we have to look forward a thousand years from this, and we have to see another barren woman. This time, not barren like Hannah, This one barren as in zero chance of a child. We need to look at the Virgin Mary. It's as barren as you come. And while Hannah might have represented the barrenness of all Israel, Mary, the barrenness of the world, without hope. And yet, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. and She gave birth to a king. And what is so remarkable is when she was pregnant, she burst into song. You can read it in Luke 2. It's called the Magnificat, and that song is Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. So much of it is drawn from that. She sees the birth of my child as the fulfillment of these things that Samuel pointed to, that King David pointed to, all fulfilled in Jesus. Mary's song are full of the same themes. God overthrowing the rich and raising up the poor. God turning the world completely upside down. God using weakness for glory. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In which you have the death of Jesus in which you can't get any weaker. You can't get any more defeated. You can't get any more of a cosmic battle taking on your enemies. Yet it was through that weakness that the enemy, the greatest enemy of all, death and sin, was defeated. It's only in looking at Jesus can we make sin or make sense of, uh, of Hannah's prayer. When he comes to, to parts, like look in chapter 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. He raises up people from, from Sheol? Well, David didn't do that. As a matter of fact, this whole Prayer of hers can be seen as resurrection. God is the one who resurrects people. And we see that in Jesus Christ who conquered death itself. Jesus is the rock that will never disappoint. He's the rock that never lets go. He's the rock on which we should build our entire life. And He's the rock whom Hannah, Samuel, David, all point. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you gave up your son 
placed him in a world that was very hostile to him. We could see how that probably broke Hannah's heart to, to give Samuel away to do your work in a place that was hostile, but nothing compared to leaving such majesty and descending to us. For we would beat your son, we would crucify him. But God, thank you that you work through weakness. You surprise us. That death could not hold your son, Jesus. And in his resurrection, we find our resurrection. And he is the king that will judge the ends of the earth from one end to the other. And we praise you, Jesus, for being our king. And I ask that you would be our rock in which we build our entire lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.